thank you for doing the pod because literally we've been trying to make this work for like six, seven months. That is true. I feel like there was three or four times we had it uh, on the books yeah. and then something uh, screwed it all up. But so you know what? When you're busy, me. when you're a busy man, you're a busy man. That's right. Yeah. Um, now, we were talking earlier um, about comedy like. You've been doing it 30 years or 35? Coming what? up on 30. Yeah, 30, 30. next year. What, what do you like about comedy today compared to when you started back in the day? Wow, I think that, you know what's uh, everlasting in comedy is it's still an escape from all the minutia and craziness that's happening in the outside world. I feel like... I, this is going to make it sound uh -huh. a little a, very dramatic, but it's kind of the last bastion in, in terms of you can go and listen to a comic, share his ideas and thoughts with no uh, impeding from anybody, you know, no editors, no standards of practice. It's still that same kind of direct uh, sharing of concepts with the crowd. That's that's more exciting now than ever. And I think it's more needed now. Don't you ever. believe in, I, I've learned this, I've, I've had a short career, nine years, uh, I'm getting into it and it's, starting to go but what i love about the stage and i want to get your take it has no prejudice it's politics to get on stage but once you're on stage right. if you're funny you're fucking funny right and and the prejudice is 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 created when you put yourself maybe in a situation where that's not your lane and i think what you're seeing with comics today unfortunately is you know you have to try on different motivations when you're learning how to you know uh, come up that ladder and that means failure that means you get up off nights that means you have to you know say things that for yourself to go okay I can't I can't go down that route anymore um, and so seeing comics have that exposed too early I think is the one caveat of like the social media age you got to give time uh, to grow in that medium now you're a comic that when you hit the stage people expect a certain level how tough is it for you to work out new material knowing, you know, you do the Laugh Factory, Comedy Store, Improv, but it's unlike a comic like me where they're getting to know me as a comic where right. you, you're, you're legendary in the game. You've been there. So how do you work out new material when they say you got 15 minutes? When you walk into a room and you have that uh, and, and, you, and you know that like people already have a preconceived notion of like whether they're a fan or not, you can hear it. If you do like a pop in and they say your name, I, I, somebody said the other night, we got a special guest. We're going to bring him up on stage now. And Dan Cook and you hear some people go like, oh, like yeah. they're excited. And then you hear some people's like hands hit the top. <laughs> The <laughs> oh, he's our special guest. And, and my line then is I usually get up and I'll say like, yeah, I know, I thought it was uh, Dave Chappelle too. <laughs> and you'll get that mix. Some people go, oh no, we love that it's you. And some people, you know, so it's, it, it, uh, it's good because you want to try new stuff in front of crowds that uh, have no opinion. Um, but at the same time, it's always great to have fans there that are like, okay, we already kind of dig your vibe and, and you speak so, to us. So you way. have no fear trying out new material, no matter what the crowd is, even if you're in front of like, a paying audience of 3,000, 4,000. I, I, when I'm doing a headlining set somewhere, I come in with the material that I know is polished and ready to, you know, give my fans who paid their hard-earned buck, you know, the night of their life. When I'm working out and like, you know, you know, on any yeah. given night, it's like the gym, you know, you're or in the lab, I think Ian Edwards says, you got to yep. go to the lab and work it out. Um, that is not a night where you're obligated to do anything beyond uh, create and explore. So some nights that goes great and uh, you're off the cuff and you're like, man, I'm just rolling and I'm getting laughs organically first time out. And then there's some nights where it's, it's a little unsettling, but you, you know that like, oh, I got to get through this spot to maybe find where the, the goods are in this 
do you know, you, piece of material. Do you still feel the pains of uh, a day. bad set? <laughs> right? <laughs> do you still feel the pains of a bad set lingering until you go on the next time? Or uh, have you, in 30 years, you're like, you know how to brush it off? I know how to brush it off. Really? I, I mean, I know how to toil and kind of still reflect on it without the part where I would beat myself up. In fact, I remember... For so many years, my everybody has their their stresses and the way they kind of process when they have a bad set. I remember when I would have like a night where I felt like I was just terrible. I'd go home, I'd be laying in bed, and my foot would just be shaking <laughs> back and forth, even as I was falling asleep, and I was replaying the set. What oh, could yes. I have done better? What could I have done better? Where did I screw up? How did I? And so I'm past those years of like uh, ruminating, um, but I, I still love trying to figure out why something's not, you know, flying why it's not working why do you love comedy so much i think it's just to be able to express myself to be able to get up on stage and and create something that's real something that's happening right now in the room you don't get that in a lot of uh forms of entertainment there's a lot of rehearsal or there's uh, you know a lot of moving parts and you're just kind of a, a one cog stand-up is you alone the spotlight hits you and that's it no do-overs no take twos yeah. it's like this is happening right now. I love that. Now, when you were a kid growing up in uh, Massachusetts, what, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you a cool kid? Were, were you one of the cool ones? Oh, were you man. an introvert? How were you? No, I was the coolest kid by myself <laughs> 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 playing with my Star Wars figures in my basement. No, loner. Completely, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was a nervous kid. I okay. Was, yeah, I was definitely. Um, Did kids pick on you? I wasn't the kid picked on, but you're I, a pretty big guy. I, I wasn't at that time, okay. I, and I felt even smaller. You know, if you feel you know like you're at the helm, then you kind of grow a little. Robin Williams used to do that. He came into the club. He was very kind of like um, he was kind of almost frail looking, and then I'd watch him go on stage, and he would be like the genie in Aladdin. Suddenly, that confidence made him look ten times bigger. My lack of confidence made me look <laughs> ten times smaller. When I was a, a kid, yeah, just a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, self issues. I mean, you name a, an issue like self loathing or you know uh, depression, anxiety. I dealt with all that stuff when I was a kid. So, did you have many friends, or just, you're pretty much a loner? Like, uh, yeah, I had uh, I had like a couple of friends. You so know? you weren't like most popular in high school. Oh no no no! I, I I was in fact when I graduated and started stand up, the response from people I went to high school with when they would see me is like you. <laughs> yeah, like you're like funny. I never heard you say a word at all in high school. I just you know it took it took stand up to finally pull my actual character out of me off stage. When did you uh, first discover stand up, or who was the person you watched growing up? Oh man, uh, I watched everything. I loved comedy. I loved sketch comedy. I was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live. I remember watching um, Martin Short on SNL, and he was just so confident. And I think I wanted that so badly. I would watch HBO specials. I'd, I'd watch uh, Carlin. I'd watch Pryor. The confidence, the the ability to, uh, you know, maybe they're swearing. Something when I'm a kid, like, wow, he's swearing at people. Or then suddenly he's being silly or he's making sound effects. And, and both of those guys were like, the architects of modern stand-up comedy. So how old were you around this so time? I was watching those guys at around, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And when was the first time you said, you know what, I'm going to try this? Yeah, like at that, at that time. At that, okay. Yeah, 14 years old, it, it, uh, I suddenly understood that it was, it was an occupation. And I told my mom when I was 14, I said, I'm going to graduate high school. I'm going to start doing open mics at Catch Rising Star in Cambridge, Mass. 
And uh, she was excited about it. She was completely behind it. I said, I'm not going to college. I wasn't an academic, you know? I, just, I was a theater geek. I okay. was like, I, creative writing. So you weren't an athlete, because you look like an athlete. Not an athlete, no. <laughs> <laughs> not an Hard athlete. no on the athlete. I, I, I mean, just because of the lack of, uh, I just had so much um, anxiety putting myself in groups. I wanted to play, and I'm actually pretty good. You know, I play basketball and stuff okay. today, but at that time, I didn't have the, I was so non-confrontational, Michael, that I hadn't, I couldn't even say, pass me the ball without getting in my own way on that. Gotcha. So it took a lot of years before I could finally be like, I can play basketball with a few people and be all right. <laughs> so so around 14 years old, yeah. you start stand up. Now, this market at this time, I mean, they had a lot of huge comedies coming yeah. out. Of I mean, I didn't like, start till I was 19, but 19. 14, like. Okay, what was the comedy scene like when you first started? Like who was in it? Yeah. Who were the comics around? Who'd you, who'd you hang out with? So I started in 1990. Uh, my graduating class of guys that are still around, or sadly one isn't, but Patrice O'Neill was yes. in my graduating class, Bill Burr, um, Gary Gullman. Um, man, there was uh, guys that were a step ahead. We, you know, Louis C.K. was like just leaving town and starting to go and you know, get his feet wet in other places. So we had a great class in Boston, 1990. Um, but the people that we were watching, the men and women that were performing there were like master craftsmen because they've been doing it for so long in Boston. So on any given night, you were, you were going up against like guys that were just, you know, killing crowds. You had to step up and, you know, and, and do One something. One of the comics out there I love is Bob Marley. Bob Marley. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Bob was in our graduating class too. Bob, it's like, you know, cause he went back, but he like, he's like rules the East coast. Bob is just, uh an incredible performer and uh, one of the guys that I'm, I'm proud that I came up with. Now, you mentioned Louis C.K. What do you think about that whole thing with him? It, you know, quite simply, it's a, it's a weird era, you know? What I, when, when you say, what do I think of him, it's like, at this point, nothing. It's, it's, you know, water under the bridge to me. But at that time, it was bizarre. It was like, yeah. I'm coming up, I'm at this upper echelon, I've hit these great heights. And then I'm learning about, oh, wow, there's like jealousy and animosity within this organization that I, you know, naively thought, oh, this is like team sport. Everybody's on each other's side. It's not. Comedy's really competitive. Okay. So let's just get the question out of the way. Yeah. Um, Nine inches. Nine, okay. <laughs> well, I'm half black. I'm bigger. I'm just saying, Dane. I'm just, hey. All right. Let's get this question out of the way. I've been in comedy for nine years. And literally, there's two responses when I mention your name. Because you've always been great to me. You've always been nice to me every club. Yeah, yeah. You've always put me on shows and things like that. There's two responses I get, Dane. Oh, he's a cool guy. Or he's a fucking asshole. So, <laughs> like, those are the two responses you right. get. How did that happen, and what did you do you think oh, contributed boy. to that? How it happened is probably a result of, you know, becoming uh, permission to speak freely. A hundred percent. Becoming a superstar at 28, 29 years old, having no playbook for what that was, coming from a background of um, deep-rooted insecurity Losing both of my parents as I'm hitting that mega stardom uh, and, and not understanding grieving. Yeah, I probably was a fucking asshole sometimes to people. I was depressed. I was confused. I was uh, uh, sometimes lonely because also I didn't have a lot of people relating to where I had, um, you know, gotten to. I aspired to get there and I went beyond it. I exceeded my own expectations. So imagine being sitting in that place and not understanding really the sense of self 
that I still lacked the discipline and the and the self-love to be able to say to somebody like you who comes in, hey, you know what? Actually, it's I'm having a rough day. And uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just a little... That's the part that I lacked at that point, the decorum of being able to say to somebody, I, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. I couldn't say that. I think I was also a little too proud to say that. Young, overwhelmed, proud, a lot of that stuff, ego, all that stuff, mixing, imagine coming in, in, in the same realm. So the people that you talk to that say, I love Dane and he's cool. Well, they were probably people that saw me before, then, and after to be able to understand kind of the plight that I was experiencing. Is there anything you wish you could have done different? Like when you did blow up, like within the clubs in oh, LA? No, I, you know, I don't think there's anything I could have done different except for I was, um, I, I was, I was becoming introduced to people who would then be mentors that were much further down the line in their career and had reached levels of success that were even greater than what I had accomplished. So once I finally uh, found those mentors and people that I could uh, kind of like therapeutically open up to and say, I don't know how to do this. I, I don't, I'm not sure how, if I'm taking the right, you know, what's the right protocol? And I could have people come back and, and just, you know, tell me straight what the deal is. That enhanced my life even greater. I think if you talk to any comic or anybody in this industry in the last six, seven years, they wouldn't say whatever you heard about yeah. me from before. I bet. I bet those are some older. All the story. Pretty much every story I've heard. They're they were like, oh, nothing's happened recently, but man, yeah. ten years ago, fifteen well, years ago. Yeah. And also remember, I'm coming into a club. I'm getting. Uh, I'm getting on stage when I want. Like like comics today, pop ins, and you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's guys come in, bump people. Uh, when you're popular and you bump, everybody loves you. Give it a few years, and when you start coming down the other side of whatever that slide or wave is, and it is going to happen to everybody, um, you'll suddenly find out that people weren't so excited that you uh, came into the club that night. When it's happening, everybody pats you on the back. Everybody loves you when you come in for a drop-in. Yeah. This, this whole thing is such a shit show, and it's so um, perpetuated by what the media is going to say that you are. They want to kind of like put this character on you, and then you get to ride that out. Where I don't mind all of the you know polarization about me is it's always been good for business yeah yeah i've never been boring i may not always like what people have said and even some of the good things that people have put out i'm like i don't remember even being that guy either but people want to yap and people want to keep spinning what a headline is or what somebody put up on the internet and to me that's a fascinating as a person who's non-confrontational and uh, that makes you maybe a little less uh, impressive in terms of the press. That's okay. Let people keep on, you know, uh, debating. So you blow up. Yep. 2006, 2007, 2008, 2000. Yes. It's going, you just lost your parents right. a year from, e from each other. How are you, who are you leaning on? For support because i know you have uh brothers uh an older brother well brother? i had an older brother but that was all, during that same period bo both parents mentor passed away brother i had to put in jail because he was yep. my business manager and uh not a good one not a good one <laughs> not a good one at <laughs> um, all so within a two to three year period you know hitting this high high that i you know only dreamed about and then having the foundation of my life that I thought was solid start to crack away. So you had nobody to lean on. Who was your support system then? 
Because um, you're the biggest comic in the world at that time. There were, you know, obviously comics that were in and around my life. The, the comics that I came up with, you know, they knew me when I was a kid. So they looked past uh, what people, you know, what was being kind of perpetuated and they knew me. So I did have support, but you got to remember, even some of those guys and girls, like, they, they were trying to make it in their own in right. In their own right, yeah. And I'm the first one out of the gate, out of that whole crew that had any level of success, let alone, like, hitting Madison Square Garden and Saturday Night Live and all these other, like, you know, amazing accomplishments. Nobody knew how to talk to me. Some of them without, you know, going into who's and why, but, like, came to me years later and was like, dude, I didn't even know how to relate to you, even as a friend, because uh, I was not in in that tax bracket. I wasn't in yeah. that spotlight. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite get it. You know, now some of them get it. You know, now I can talk to certain people and it's like, oh yeah, I, I, I see what's happening. Here. So if you could go back and I, would, I wouldn't, you wouldn't, nope. you would keep moving forward. There's nothing. I, you would, I would not go back because how I feel hitting 30 years as a, as a person first off mm -hmm. and being truly happy, truly like having a great sense of who I am and liking myself and appreciating myself. And then as a performer, feeling even more present on stage, having all these tools finally that I, when I blew up, I wasn't, I didn't have everything down as a comic that I thought I needed. I had some stuff that I was like, you know, using, utilizing, but personally, I was like, I, I have way more to learn. I still you, felt like I was so young in comedy. And did so you think, now it's, it's a whole different game. Did you think you were funny at that time you were big? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I knew I knew even in the mid nineties driving around in my shitbox cars doing gigs for nothing in the middle of nowhere, I still was driving home giddy because I knew it was working. Okay. I knew it. I felt it. When I, did you first know like that first pop where people were like, Oh, Dan Cook, what's up, man? Like people started knowing you. Because you were one of the first like MySpace, like blew up on MySpace, even right? Be even before the Because you did the Comedy Central stuff before that. Yeah. I mean that started kinda ninety eight, ninety nine premium uh -huh. blends and you know, mm -hmm. whatever was uh, you know, Comedy Central at the time. But even prior to that, I started to understand that I was doing a lot of colleges in the first few years. And even though I was still green, I was getting some laughs and I was already having, um, you know, students say, hey, I saw you at the University of blah, blah, blah. I drove to this school to watch you again with my friend. That's when you knew. And I'm like, okay, if that's happening with three or 400 people and I'm starting to see repeat customers, to me, numbers and all those analytics are, are simple. Here's a quick... For anybody that's trying to build anything, if you can get 100 people interested in what you're doing, you can get 100 million people interested in what you're doing. Wow. Absolutely. Okay. If you can get anybody interested, interested. And, yeah. you can, and you have those numbers, you can absolutely turn that into something greater. Why do you think your business model worked? Like, what, did, what is the one thing that helped it take off? Because there's so many people that are funny. You know this. There's so many people that are funny. Was it the MySpace? Was it the Comedy Central? What, what was the one thing? If you had to pinpoint one thing that helped you just launch, yeah. what would that be? I think that the slow buildup of all the years of touring you know, what's that saying? Like it becomes 20 years to become an overnight sensation. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so all those years of touring and then you hit like 2001, two, three. Now I'm utilizing like digital as well to communicate with fans. And then I'm putting out a couple albums and they're, you know, getting, you know, decent kind of uh, out of my trunk, great reviews. I'm selling them for, you know, cash on hand right there. <laughs> yeah. But I put out Retaliation that came out uh, 2004 or five. Went platinum. 
went platinum, double platinum, platinum. whatever was after that. You know, I was getting calls <laughs> from these guys like, do you want this other placard? And I'm like, I literally don't even have any room on my walls at this point. I'm like, I'm like, whatever it is, just, you know, I'm grateful. But, you know, what does this mean for my life and career now? That year, um, every the, the, the people that were trying to get in touch with me, the jobs that were coming my way, the offers, the television movies, that all changed after retaliation. Wow. Okay. So that so, was kind of my my gateway moment into the next level. So you you moved into movies, and then you had a couple uh, TV pilots that yep. didn't go. Were you surprised because you're the biggest comic in the world? You're mm -hmm. like, ah, oh, the TV pilots are gonna go. I didn't think the TV pilots would go. Did you not think they were good? I thought that here's here's what I knew, in in how my comedy was in in the middle of an evolution of where I was to where I am now and where I wanted to be. I relied so heavily on physical comedy at that time. I was so um, uh, enthusiastic within every piece of even written material. There was just always the sheen of uh, animated something. That doesn't translate very well. It's too big for TV. Too big, yeah. Unless you're like a side character that comes in and just like, you know, is the tornado, like a Tasmanian devil type who comes in. That at the center of a show, I felt it. I would watch dailies and be like, this is just, too, I'm too much. I'm overwhelming the entire scene. So the people that were surrounded you, you know, like yeah. the director, the, were they honest with you and go, hey, can you tone it yeah. down? Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Russ, Russ Krasnoff was my uh, producer on a couple of my pilots. And, you know, that guy believed in, he was a real champion. And he would come back and he would say like, you know, uh, he would say, you're, you're so dynamic and you're, you're pulling in all this energy and you're giving such a big performance that we need to find something that, that grounds it's you almost more. On, you're doing stand-up. Yeah, and that yeah. doesn't work for TV. Yeah. And what, or, or even films. It's like stillness and in, in what happens emotionally here is what plays there. Um, and so if you start to look at the movies like Mr. Brooks or Dan in Real Life or um, you know, even Good Luck Chuck, I started to... My stand-up and my uh, uh, film and television became kind of a different style of performance, which is what I was always trying to get to. Now, your past stand-up, it was more of, you know, observational and your experiences. Right. Now, when I see you, it's more personal. Like, you're sure. really getting more. Is that harder for you to do than the observational, like, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? If you had told me 15 years ago, you're going to go on stage and talk about, like, uh, you know, having anxiety in a funny way. That, that would have given me anxiety in an <laughs> unfunny way. Uh, I just couldn't wrap my head around how to deliver that. And also, you got to remember, Michael, I, I, I came up with a generation of comedy fans that were in my 20s were, you know, college kids too. They didn't want to hear. No, you know, they, they don't want to hear anything. They want to hear real. about like, you yeah. know, the, the high watermarks. And for a lot of years, people want to hear about and they want to celebrate that you're the shiny new thing. Once you're not that anymore, that's not as funny. What's interesting is life, life and the real, you know, hardcore nitty gritty, both what's happened to you and how you have seen it on display and how it's affected the world around you. So where I can be now is I can still have observation. I still put a lot of observational Absolutely. stuff, but it's, it's now siphoned from an experience that I had personally. And that's where it's, it's, um, I feel like the, the one word that I've always wanted to be able to have in my stand-up and in my career is is pedigree. Yeah, one hundred percent. Even when I made it, I was not of a high pedigree. I had I had flex of what you thought I I was, or like the spectacle of Madison Square Garden and all these things that were also exciting. You know, in and, the whole Christmas tree was just on you know lit up. 
I wanted to be just that one performer at any size venue who could share something and have you laughing your ass off, but at the same time, like, wow, holy shit, like a holy shit moment. I can't mm -hmm. believe you're sharing that. So, well, I, 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 the best piece of advice I ever got is from a good friend, Joe Coy. He said, people outgrow jokes, but they don't outgrow you. That's right. So if they love you, they're going to love you. That's right. Yeah. And that's really, that's, um, uh, that, I mean, that's something that, you know, everybody should, should uh, hold on to and mm -hmm. remember. I mean, everything's got its shelf life. Yeah. But as Patrice O'Neill said, I've said it a lot of times, he gave me the greatest advice. He said, you can't fuck with the truth. When you're the truth, that is, uh, that is timeless. And so uh, when people say to me now, I'm still watching uh, Retaliation or, you know, Vicious Circle, I'm fortunate. A lot of that material has stood the test of time. I don't know if my bootcut jeans have or, <laughs> right. or my, my blown back feathered hair or whatever was happening. Uh, those things uh, don't uh, age as well. But the material, I'm really proud of a lot of it, you know, even more than even more than when I was in the middle of that storm and, and, uh, and doing it. I actually look back really, uh, you know, with a lot of affection of a lot of that early craziest material. fan story. Oh man, craziest fan story. Well, I, I got into a, a fight with a guy on stage one time. Wait, he jumped on stage? Well, he? he was a fan until the fight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What I don't was think it? Do you remember where this was? Yeah, this was very early college gigs when it was starting to go from like a couple thousand to then it was, you know, turning into. I Tens remember. Of I, thousands. Yeah, I showed up at a college one time. They were like freaking out. They're like, we, we had you in the, you know, 1200 seat theater, but we had to move it to the field house because we got 4,000 people and we thought it was going to be, you know, 900 people. And I, and I you're going, I should have charged more. I, I, I really should. Have <laughs> I don't think I charged it. Those were, okay. those were those like, you know, if you went to the school, you got to, you know, got in free, but a, a guy came in, I'd have been at Quinnipiac. He was, he was pretty hammered. And, uh, I just laid into him. And then next thing you know, he was running toward the stage. I thought he was just like running to, you know, run up and point and threaten me yeah. like a wrestler would run up and be like, you're going to go down, yeah, brother. No, he kept running. And then he jumped up on the stage. And I'm sure somebody has a video of this somewhere. And we're literally like tussling. Security is not helping me. Uh, they had two security guys that were hired to be a part of it. And I remember after I came off stage and I'm, I'm like got blood coming out of my ear and this kid's all messed up. And the security guy goes, we thought it was part of the show. <laughs> We thought it was a rehearsed fight? and planned. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a stunt choreographer, dude. Ugh, that's so that was one of the wildest ones that I can share with you here. Uh, no, no girl sneaking into the hotels or anything uh, like if that. If I didn't have a girlfriend that uh, I love okay. and am, uh, adore, then I would probably tell all the salacious details. Okay, so my my <laughs> wife, my wife is 12 years younger than me. Your okay. girlfriend is how much younger than you? Uh, tw uh she's 20 and I'm 47. Now, do, how do y'all relate? Well, the, she's the old woman in the relationship. She's the one who like <laughs> is in bed by nine o'clock and I've got endless energy and I'm still like writing at two in the morning. Um, but she's the best. She's the greatest. Uh, I have never met anybody like her. And, uh, you know, the age difference is like people like to, you know, Josh with us about it. And it's like, I'm a comic. I can, I can yeah. take whatever, you know, but if you knew her and if you had the chance to see us together, Absolutely. Which maybe you've seen us yeah. together at the club. It just makes sense. Do you feel like, uh, are, are you at the point in your life where it's such a Hollywood thing too, it is. right? It Isn't is. it? it? I is. feel like it's like, uh, I'm just in this long but, Pete but, Davidson, like <laughs> name this long list of all right. these guys with, uh, you know, younger girlfriends, but, uh, no, she, Hey, you know, 
I love her. Look, you're 47 now? Yeah. 47. Do you see yourself being a father, being married? Do you Absolutely. want kids? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, without getting, you know, speaking yeah. on her behalf, it's like, you know, we're on the same track. Okay, so yeah. you're you're on tour right now. You got a bunch of dates yeah. in September: uh, Verona, New York; Niagara Falls, New York; Bethlehem, PA; Baltimore, MD; Radio City Music Hall, know, September 14th; New York, Louisville, Kentucky; also Nashville, Tennessee. Do you still love touring? Do you still because it. it could take a toll on you too? Yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's a lot of work. It's also harder once like. You know, I've got a business out here and, you know, uh, producing and directing and, and writing other projects. I've always got plates spinning and that makes it harder to leave. But there's also something about the um, discipline of touring that I love. It really just keeps you on such a hardcore schedule. The shows are amazing. They've been amazing. Uh, the Tell It Like It Is tour is one of my most successful tours that uh, I've done in the last 10 or 12 years. Um, and so it all just feels like it's it's working. And then Radio City, never done it before. I mean, come on, that's amazing. Dr dreamt of, I used to walk by that place, you know, heading to crazy gigs in New York City and saying like, man, I'd love to come back here someday. And You know, when you were on that, uh, the top pinnacle. Yeah. And then you, you go down a little bit. I did. You know, everybody goes down. Yes, Dan, you, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you. No, but I'm saying everybody has their ups and downs in their career. Sure. Did people, the, the question More is, downs than ups, more normally. Down, more downs than ups. Yes. But you got to experience that high. Yes. You, yeah. And you and you still, compared to 99.9999% of comedy, you're still on a high. The highs are um, great. You know, there there's a lot of rewards that come with that. The lows are funnier. Yes. <laughs> There's way more comedy in the lows. But how did people change around you? Did, 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 was it tough for you to adjust? That's a great, great question. And you know what, Michael? The thing about that is, here's the one, when you say would I change anything, the, the great part about being such a, like, uh, a guy with, I didn't have like a posse, I didn't have a, somebody who always kind of traveled solo is when it all went to that level or this level or over here, it's like, I've always maintained a certain level of sanity because I didn't have a rotating door of like hangers-ons yeah. around me. Yes, man. The same people are really in my life. I have great friends out of the business. A lot of them aren't even in show business. And so when I get off stage, I just feel like a regular guy, you know? I still observe and report for stand-up, but it's nice to have people around me that are like, they don't need or want anything from me and I them. So it just makes it like, you know, regular, everyday, boring stuff. So where's your stand-up right now? If you had to describe your stand-up right now, yeah. if I'm going to see Dane Cook, I haven't seen, seen you in 10 yep. years, what are they going to get different now than they did before? I will tell you, I always think it's great to, uh, you know, when you're hearing a review from the person creating it, it's like, okay, they're going to say it's great. And I'm at my, the fans, I do meet and greets every night. Nobody is, my fans are no bullshit. They've had a direct line to me from MySpace all the way up. So they're used to saying to me, what the fuck was that? Yeah. They're used to saying to me, why did you do that movie? They're used to saying to me, that was my favorite thing I've ever seen you do. So on any given night, I do a meet and greet. I meet about 100 people. And they come up and they go, man, I was at Vicious Circle or I was at this show or this is my eighth show. This is my 10th show. This is my favorite show. You exceeded my expectations. Do you think because it's more personal? I just think... And they're getting to know you rather than the character of Dane? I think that... For a lot of years, when I made it, I was still dragging a lot of this stuff from when I was a kid. Yeah. I was still trying to like run away from or uh, not be that scared kid anymore. And then when things kind of settled down and that first wave broke, 
it was like I was just thinking about the future constantly. What's next? What's next? What's next? And then in the last bunch of years, it's like I'm present. And to be on stage and not racing towards something or running away from something, you're going to see the best show you've ever seen me do. Best material, uh, uh, my storytelling, everything is just on point. No LPMs lost, no laughs per minute lost. You're coming out, you're paying your hard-earned buck, you're going to see your favorite show that you've seen me do. And I know that just from what people are telling me this whole year. See, that's great. That, yeah. That's great. That I, That's what I love about comedy is you can evolve. You know, they can know you, and, they, and it must be awesome to see people from 10 years, 15 years ago, still coming out to support you, yeah. that longevity. So for anybody watching this, that is, first of all, it's like, how can I create longevity, or what can I do to be a better comic? What advice would you give to them? Well, I think that uh, it's imperative to stick to your guns in terms of when, you, um, when you're first starting out, I feel like when we're first starting, we have like a natural uh, voice inside of us that's that's the reason we're there in the first place. And then, then a lot of noise starts to happen. A lot of people start telling you what you're doing wrong. A lot of people start telling you, if you wanna work at this particular place, you gotta be this kind of comic. If you wanna get on TV, you gotta have this kind of material. And I think that's where it gets a little sketchy. And what you end up having is you go off, how many comics you could talk to on any given night that have hit like a mid-level to slightly higher success, they're all gonna say, man, I, I did try to do a TV show that was so not me and they try to fit me in this. You gotta be authentic. And how you can do that is try to have some mystery about you. Coming from the person that used the internet to actually go the other way when it used to be like, no, you need to get the exposure. Now I have a different philosophy. Don't do that. Okay. Don't, don't, antics and behavior in your podcast without uh, any kind of real depth um, of personality, you are setting yourself up for your 15 minutes of fame. I Antics and behavior, just a silly, goofy character for that moment, you're gonna get clicks. You're gonna get a lot of people going, we love this! But what if they don't love it in a couple of weeks and you have no nothing else that you've integrated into the antics and the behavior? It's, it's, not a, it's not a route that you should go down. Stay off the internet, work on your stuff at clubs, anywhere you can get where people aren't gonna like be in your face about what you're doing wrong and just you know try, fail, and you'll figure it out. You know, I see you every time on your father or mother's birthday or Father's Day, Mother's Day, you always yeah. do a post sure. to them, which is, which is very nice. What would they say about Dane oh, today? Oh, man. Well, my mom would say, I knew it. I knew it. She saw the whole thing. She was like a real... Um, she had like a psychic ability. When I was 14, 15, we'd talk about like big dreams and you know, she was talking about Radio Cities and she was talking about, you know, baby, you're gonna take it to the heights. And I did get to show her everything. Before my mom passed away, um, you know, the arenas were happening and she, she just would on any phone call or sitting down with her say, you know, I saw this. I saw it when you didn't even see it in yourself. My dad would say, <laughs> listen, he'd probably say something like, um, my dad always liked to find what was wrong in any situation. So he was like, he would level me out in some way. I don't know what he would say exactly right now because I feel like I'm like on such a hot streak. Uh, but he'd probably say, tell me I got more work to do. <laughs> you got more work to do. Yeah, that, some, but that's what all dads form. do, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just that, that whole thing about like the, the, the yin and the yang of how my mother was so confident for me when I didn't have it. And my dad could be so... Um, he, he was just really good at, uh, he, could, he could somehow almost, um, I don't wanna make this sound wrong, but like 
he could make you feel less enthusiastic about something because maybe you were just dreaming of it more than actualizing it. And so he would pop that bubble and be yeah. like, you're not, you're talking about it, but you are doing nothing. Don't talk about it, be about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you got a, also a short that came out. Yeah. Holly, Holly Shorts are doing your movie. Yeah, we're-, Ameri we're American Typecast, that's right? That's right, yeah, yeah. And what is this movie about? And why'd you want to go into the directing? Because you're a director, sure. you wrote it, you're acting in it, you had to get the budget for it, you had to hire all the actors right. and work at a low budget for it. That's right. Uh, was this tougher than stand-up for you to pull off? It's, uh, it is so different. You know, it's such a collaborative effort. When you're working with people on a film or a TV show, it's, it's so not stand-up. You know, stand-up is like the solo act of what's in your mind and how you're going to translate that. When you're working on a on a film, especially like this, you've got so many expectations and you want to come through for everybody. Everybody's usually working on a short or an independent for little to no money. And so, you know, it's passion piece. Um, this idea, my friend Monib, his name's Monib Abhat. He's been an actor out here for a lot of years. We would talk at the gym about how he would, he was from Sacramento. He's the most affable, coolest guy. He's going in for terrorists every other day. He's, middle, he's a Middle Eastern actor. Yeah. And we would talk about it. And of course, I'd bust his balls and stuff because as a comic, you know, we want to make fun of all that stuff. And he would laugh and we'd talk about his stories. And then finally, he shared a story with me. I said, man, you know what? We should write something and do a short that's basically like what you're experiencing because it's, uh, it's an interesting... We're in, we're in a time right now where it's like um, the, these conversations and shedding humor on these kinds of conversations, I think, are important. Um, and so we wrote it, put it together. Next thing you know, we figured out a budget that was, you know, not going to break the bank and we made it. And suddenly we're now, this is like our sixth short film festival. And this one is actually the most exciting because we're in there with um, uh, Lena Headley and Amanda Siegfried and, uh, you know, some real heavy hitters and to be directing something that's going to now be at Man's Chinese Theater or Grauman's Chinese now is... Uh, I'm really proud of it. Is that. it tough watching yourself? Like in that oh, yeah. side? Yeah. Yeah, especially for the role that I played in this. I put on a bunch of, I, I had to be a casting director in this for Monib's character. And uh, I, I was kind of in pretty good shape at that time. So I was like, I'm just going to like gain a bunch of weight and like let myself go a little. So I just look like this kind of like everyday, you know, dad bod guy. What I forgot was I'm 47. And, <laughs> and, and, and losing that was not as... <laughs> was not as uh, simple as uh, as it used to be. It's that was a, a nice le lesson in um, in in how to get into ketosis, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> but very very happy with the the film, and now we're trying to parlay it into a series. So a series, we'll yeah. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So what's so what's the movie about though? What's the short about? Yeah, so it's it's a day in the life of a Middle Eastern actor, and we're kind of following him as he's going from audition to audition, playing. Um, you know, uh, uh, bomber, every audition is bomber, a terrorist. terrorist. Right? Yeah, in fact, my friend Monib, it's like his 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 uh, acting reel is like this is me blowing up a helicopter on NCSI. <laughs> this is me as the bomb guy in uh, you know this criminal minds. Blah blah blah. It's just all bad guy roles. So is it a comedy or is it dramedy? It's kind of a dramedy. Okay, but but I really feel like without giving too much away, uh, something happens in the third act of our short. It's about sixteen minutes long. That. Uh, is going to give him a hero moment unlike anything he'd ever experienced uh, playing these kinds of roles. And where can people see it? Can everybody go to this festival? So Holly Shorts is happening right now. We're hoping that we're going to do a few more festivals this year. And then it's either eventually going to end up as part of our series uh, or I'll put it online at some okay. point. But for right now, we can't uh, 
share it with people because it's in contention for you know different uh, shorts and programs. And now stuff. going back to comedy, yeah. you know now everybody has cell phones. Right. Everybody tapes stuff. Sure. Are you more cautious when you go on stage? No, I, I don't. Uh, you know, going through all that media, you know, going through like the the intensity of what that whole period of you know backlash and all that prepared me for. Um, I'm not out of step with my opinion or with my comedic observations. I'm very, I'm, I'm confident completely that uh, if you if you want to take me out of context, there's certainly a way. Yeah. You could film anybody, and you, it happened to me once. Somebody put something on CNN, and it was, uh, you know, something I'd said, uh, you know, some years back, and it was like, oh, they took a fragment, and of course, anything can sound, uh, you know, uncouth when you're when you're edited, but. As far as if somebody filmed my whole set and it went up online, you might go, "Wow, this isn't particularly funny," but I'm I'm not not uh, proud of anything that I'm putting out there. Should comics apologize? No. Okay. No, I think that uh, I, I've heard you know comedians have to apologize because uh, maybe they uh, truly felt like they had caused somebody you know real pain with a comment. I don't think it's bad to apologize to a person yeah. if it was a, mm -hmm. a personal infliction but apologizing just for um the because a lot of people got mad you're just apologizing just to yeah yeah and and man we just live in this strange time now it's where very sensitive man yeah everybody everybody feels like um everybody on the internet feels like they have some kind of stake in you and therefore um you know if, if the the mob comes after you um, you know, you have to become what it, adhere to what it what it is that they want you to be. And I don't subscribe to that. I think it's like let people mess up, let people make mistakes. Sometimes your worst moment in life becomes the thing that gets you to greatness. Mm -hmm. Why should the worst moment in your life be so picked apart that it makes you want to pack up and actually quit and maybe never strive to be something better than what you were in your low moment? to then become something that actually matters to people. That's fucked. Yeah. People should seriously sit back before they hit send and really think about what it is that they're putting up And this there. is going to sound wrong me saying, but I think everything went all haywire when everybody gets to voice an opinion. You know what I mean? Like, it's good that you have an opinion, but once you can go attack people with that opinion online and, like, you don't have to show your face. You can yeah. put a cat profile on there. Right. You could be hidden. Like, my thing with the internet, and this is... This is never going to happen. But if you're a hateful person and you're putting out, you should, they shouldn't let you do that. They should put, like, you, your profile, right. your name like a, should like be on Like a license. You yes. Need to, you need to have, like, uh, like, like, like what Facebook did with politics. Now you have to register. You have to show a license. You have to show you have all to be these. Russian. You have to be Russian. <laughs> exactly. You have to be Russian. But at least they're trying to do something to, if you're putting out hateful stuff, you have to show some type of ID or identification Listen, that you're doing. I think that's great, but I just want to be super clear. I don't think we're talking about, I think um, uh, open forum debate is essential and when imperative. when you can hide though, when you can I'm hide. Talking, I'm talking about specifically okay. with comedy, mm. specifically with entertainment and a person's story about said, being apologetic for art is that I don't I, I don't understand that and I don't understand breaking somebody down when they say or put something out there that is meaningful to them even though the masses might not agree now I think that we should encourage that kind of healthy debate but I think like having people just go on the attack and be cruel and unusual yeah they have bots now that do it it's they just it's, robotic bots that just attack yeah, everybody yeah no I I, I love um 
I, I love debate. I love uh, watching it. I'm, I'm kind of funny as a person who's a bit of a pacifist and in non-confrontational. You like I, watching I, verbal. Well, I mean, you love watching verbal combat. I do because I'm a. I'm also like a devil's advocate kind of yeah. person. I think that in comedy we all are because we have to see both sides for an understanding of where the funny lays in the middle. Um, but I have an insatiable appetite for all those kinds of like talking head. Uh, debates, and I think that that should be online, and I think everybody's voice should be heard. But when it starts to tilt over into like just smashing somebody that you don't know because their opinion varies from you in in something that they've created artistically, it's like that's just that's fucking crazy to me. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up, but I want to ask you a couple first questions since yes. this is the first time you've been on this show. That's right. The first of many, Michael. First of many. Yes. This has gone well, I look Dave. forward to rescheduling with you <laughs> eight or nine times and then coming I'll, back. I'll see you in about five years, Dane. <laughs> about five years as a kid. Okay, these are first questions. First time you bombed on stage. First time I bombed on stage, uh, legitimate bomb was in 90, 1994, I did a show at uh, Boston Garden as part of a uh, festival. And they threw lighters and they threw shoes at us. But you weren't doing stand-up, you were doing improv. Right? right, I was in an improv group. But that was the first time I had felt like this is what bombing on stage feels like. Did it make I was you mortified. Want, did you feel like quitting after that? I didn't feel like quitting, but I'd never experienced anything in my body as I thought this. I had like genuine fear leaving the stage that night of like, is that what it's going to be every time in a group or by myself? That was rough. That was a hard one. What about, did you ever bomb by yourself on yeah, stage? Yeah, I mean, I had rough sets, but I also feel like I never had, um, I always was, I loved improv. And when you do a lot of improv, um, if you watch like a Jeff Garland on any given night, well, it, a good set or a bad set, it's it's so opinionated. It's like Jeff's doing Jeff. Jeff's being in the moment. And I feel like for me, in a lot of my early years, I didn't feel like I was bombing, even if I had a off night or a rough set, because I was working. I was We're playing. Working. Yeah. So, I, but I, you know, I've definitely taken a hot one here and there. Okay. First concert you ever went to? Uh, Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fleetwood Mac. Were you a fan, or was this something your parents brought you to when yeah, you were no, younger? Yeah, no, no. My uh, older sister and, and uh, brother at the time brought me to see them. We had been listening to them all summer on uh, vacation in Maine, and they came through Boston, and my family took me to see them. First time you ever got in a fist fight? Fist fight? Uh, probably like sometime early in high school. Were you a fighter? Like, no, no, no. I didn't want to be in the fight. In fact, I don't think my, <laughs> I don't think my fists were actually in the fight. <laughs> like, I don't think I made contact. I think I had him there. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that was probably over pretty quickly. First celebrity crush. First celebrity cr Might have been... Oh, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Uh -oh. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. There was a show called Kids Incorporated. Kids Incorporated. That's right. I don't Fergie know. Fergie was on that show. She was on that yeah. show. Yeah. So when I was a kid, she was on there. And then there was another uh, singer, Martika, who Eminem ended up using her Toy Soldiers yep. song. So I remember them being my first like TV crushes. Oh, very nice. Then first uh, big purchase, when you busted, when you went huge and selling selling all out all these shows first big purchase first big purchase well first thing i ever bought with any uh development deal money or whatever was my mom i got her a, a house i bought her a, a, a condo that she wanted and for myself i think it was a um i think it was a it was a uh lx sc 430 convertible 
And I was like, I made it. I man. made it. I am on top of the world. <laughs> and, I, and I bought it. I didn't lease it. Like, like here's I the bought cash. this car outright. And I remember driving away. You got to remember though, that to me, that having that new car after how many years of road, road dog gigs, I can name six shitbox cars that I had. None of them made it to the final gig that I was supposed to be getting to. They were probably still on the side of a highway somewhere in New England. And I said, I'm going to buy myself a cool car someday when I finally make it. All right, so people can go to dancook.com for all the tour dates. All the uh, We added some new tour dates. There's still maybe a couple of Radio City tickets available, okay. but I'm hearing that's already sold out. Everything else. Um, well, that yeah, show's still two months away, dude, like a month and a half. Sold out like six months ago. Six months ago, they were already talking about, should we add another one? And I said, I'm just going to do the one. This tour, this tour, it's like one time through because I'm hitting so many different spots. Yeah. But I'll definitely do another one already. And people can look out for the short. Yeah, American Typecast. If you're in Hollywood, you could see it. Uh, and if not, then at some point, hopefully it'll just be online or on a TV show somewhere. All right. Well, Dane, thank you so much. Michael, for thanks. By, yeah, I'm bro. glad we finally did it. Dude, thank you. I appreciate it, man. This has been great. Yeah. Uh, for all you people watching, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you like it. Make sure you share it. Dane Cook, Episode 3, Michael Yo Show. We're out. <laughs>